let them eat cake. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? History podcast where we ask the same question every week. But I always get a different answer from my brother, David White. I'm Neil White. Uh, thanks for joining me again, David. Always glad to be here, Neil. And the question we always ask, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's December 22nd, 1421, and a column of heavily built wagons are charging at reckless speed, firing primitive cannons in all directions as they burst through the encircling army of the Holy Roman Empire. This sounds very dramatic. Some sort of old-fashioned tanks? Heavily built-up wagons firing artillery? Exactly, and you're not the first to refer to the Hussite Wagenberg as almost proto-tanks of the 1400s. So what's going on? Why are these tanks charging through the lines of the Holy Roman Empire? Well, to start with... These tanks belong to the Hussites. They're a religious movement. We mostly think of the uh, Middle Ages before Martin Luther as in Europe as being all Catholic all the time. But there were a few small groups that did not agree with the powerful position of the Catholic Church at that time in history. And the Hussites were one of them? The Hussites were one of them. They were in a country called Bohemia, now uh, roughly in the region of the modern-day Czech Republic. And they have great rhapsodies. And they followed the preaching of a priest known as Jan Hus, which is why they were called the Hussites. He did not like the institutional organization of the Roman Catholic Church. And so what didn't he like? It it was about the church's organization? One of his biggest problems, and the one that resonated most with the people of Bohemia, was the fact that the church raised funds with dubious means, offering to sell indulgences and otherwise trying to coerce people into giving money to the pope and... Many people weren't happy with that. Martin Luther would raise that, of course, as one of his major concerns when he started the Reformation. But Jan Hus had a particular problem at the precise time he lived. You see, in 1411, there were two popes trying to raise money off of the Bohemian peasantry. How did they end up with two popes? Well... That's a long story, uh, and we'll only be cutting the surface of it right now. But there was a major schism of the Catholic Church at the end of the 1300s. And as that went on, you eventually reached a point where two different groups of cardinals elected different men to what they claimed to be the papacy. And then the Catholic Church was split with different believers following whoever they believed to be the true Pope as against whoever they believed to be 
the anti-pope. But in Bohemia, where it wasn't clear which pope had the following of the majority of the people of the country, both popes had various clergy going around trying to raise funds in the hopes of leading war against the other. So Jan Hus's solution to having too many popes was to start a new religion? Seems like just adding more fuel to the fire. A new religion that, much like the later Reformation, would not have any pope. The solution to too many popes was no popes, apparently. And how did that go over with the popes? The Catholic Church was unhappy. In 1411, Jan Hus was preaching that people should not follow the Catholic Church's teachings on the authority of the Pope. So in 1412, the Catholic Church invited him to a conference to discuss theology and whether or not he was right. And they got the King of Hungary, Sigismund, to grant him safe passage and guarantee his safety. So he decided to go to the conference. Okay, and did the king of Hungary uphold his word? Well, no. No, he didn't make any specific effort either to protect Jan uh, Hus or not. And the Catholic Church decided that he was a heretic and burnt him at the stake. Ouch, not a good ending for Jan Hus. No, and his followers also felt that way. In Bohemia, and especially in the city of Prague, the capital of Bohemia at the time, they were extremely unhappy. And they started to form armed defense units and march in the streets, demanding that their religion be acknowledged as a separate religion from the Catholic Church and as it's something that people could freely worship. So in 1412, was that a fairly radical idea? It was. It was an extremely radical idea, and the Catholic Church was not okay with it at all. They started putting pressure on anybody they could to try and fix it, but the king of, of Bohemia at the time, King Wenceslas, tried to sort of thread the needle, avoid either inciting the Hussites into violence or letting the Catholic Church gain more political power in his country by bringing in an army, even as the Pope was already suggesting that the right solution to this crisis was a crusade. Is this the good King Wenceslas of the Christmas song? This is a later King Wenceslas than the good King Wenceslas, but perhaps not a bad King Wenceslas. So the Roman Catholic Empire is suggesting this crusade uh the king is trying to keep them from invading his country but also uh not get too far on the bad side of the bohemian uh, people who want to found this new religion exactly seems complicated it's already complicated and it seems at first like he's going to manage to thread that needle avoid anything going too far but then King Wenceslas dies, just natural causes, as could happen to anyone. But the heir to his throne happens to be Sigismund, King of Hungary, who I already mentioned had guaranteed Jan Hus's safety 
when he went to Constance. I'm guessing that didn't go over well with the Hussites. The Hussites were not happy. And in order to make it clear that they weren't happy, they had a political protest in Prague in which they marched into the town hall, seized the officials who had announced that King Sigismund was now the king of Bohemia, and threw them out of a second-story window. A little more dramatic than political protests tend to be these days. So with these officials being flung out the window, was the king coming to take his throne? That was exactly what he decided to do. King Sigismund raised an army in Hungary and marched towards Prague with the intention of bringing the rebellious Bohemians to heel and solidifying his rule over the country. Was there an organized resistance against him among the Hussites? The Hussites, when they heard he was coming, immediately rushed to found an organized resistance to defend themselves against what they viewed as a foreign usurper marching in to seize their lands. And as they put out a call for experienced military commanders to lead their armies against King Sigismund, one man heard that call, Jan Shiska. So who was Jan Shiska? Well, at this point, Jan Shiska was just a minor nobleman who'd been making his living as a soldier across Europe, mostly in the region around Bohemia, Eastern Europe. He'd fought at the Battle of Grunwald in Poland against the Teutonic Knights. He probably fought in a few other small actions uh, at various places and times, but he certainly wouldn't have been very famous at the time. But when he heard that the Hussites were looking for a general, he raised a small group of followers and marched to Prague to offer himself for the cause. So was there a resume application process? How did it work to become the general of the Hussites? Well, it wasn't a straightforward resume application process. There wasn't really a clear organization yet at the top of the Hussites to accept resumes. On the other hand, small parties of troops loyal to King Sigismund had already entered the country, so Jan Shizka proved his experience and skills fighting in early small-scale skirmishes, leading the Hussite troops and gaining a reputation as their best general. Well, that seems to be a good way to prove your worth, is just start doing the job and uh, do it well. So. Things were moving along uh, fairly quickly here in this battle war between the Hussites and the King of Hungary. And the King of Hungary marched his troops to Prague, hoping to seize it quickly. But Jan Shiska and the other would-be leaders of the Hussite army had reached there faster. And in the end, they managed to fight off the relatively small force that Sigismund had to hand and drove him all the way back to his other country, Hungary. And that was the end of what became retroactively known as the First Hussite Crusade. But it wasn't the end of the Hussites. Yeah, if that's the end of the First Hussite 
crusade, it seems to imply that there's might be a second. Indeed, and King Sigismund begins organizing practically as soon as he's back in Hungary a newer, larger army to actually crush these Bohemian rebels. In order to raise it, he declares a second crusade, although the first one had never actually been declared as a crusade, but don't worry too much about that, a second crusade against the Hussite heretics, and he's backed up for the most part by the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church obviously doesn't like the Hussites, as we discussed, because they're a rival religion. So does the king have success in raising this army for this crusade? He raises a massive army very quickly, and it really worries the Hussites. In the meantime, the Hussites have created a government to run the country. They don't have any clear candidate to be king, so instead of creating a monarchy, they create a council of somewhat popularly at least approved senior nobles to run one of the very few non-monarchy-led countries in Europe in the Middle Ages. And with this new government in place, they appoint Jan Shiska to raise an army of their own to fight off the Crusaders when they arrive. So we know the Crusaders are raising a big army. Uh, how does things go for Yan raising his army? Well, Yan can raise a lot of enthusiastic troops because the Hussite religion is popular in Bohemia, but most of them have no experience because there hasn't been a major war in Bohemia for quite some time. Meanwhile, Sigismund is raising troops from across Europe, and many of them are not only experienced, they're knights. They're showing up with horses and armor and military technology ready to fight in a way that Jan Shizka's inexperienced troops simply aren't. Are these knights joining up because they believe it to be a crusade and a, a holy noble thing to do, or is there ulterior motives? Well, some of them are probably joining because they believe it's a holy crusade. Others are joining because King Sigismund is announcing that he will pay his troops and he will also distribute lands to some of his victorious officers, which is certainly a temptation on a less spiritual plane. All right, so what happens with the Second Crusade? Well, the army crosses the border, and Jan Shiska knows that he needs a clever tactic if he wants to win, so he invents one. He decides that his troops will use their supply wagons. They'll circle them in a giant circular wagon formation, and they'll use that as a defensive fortification in a place that the Crusaders don't expect to encounter one. And then, once the Crusading Knights have tried to attack it and been broken up because they can't get through the solid wood of the wagons, his forces will sally out and defeat them. So he's essentially built a fort out of wagons. Exactly. He even calls the tactic the Wagenberg, which translates almost literally as wagon fort. It's, it's clever. I, I'd imagine the knights approaching uh, were quite confused to see this giant circle of wagons. The first time they saw it, they were 
absolutely baffled and what they did was what knights do when they're baffled by something they tried to charge at it and hit it with lances which was obviously not the right reaction in this case it's exactly what yan shishka wanted he lured them in and then when the moment was right he counterattacked and drove them off again leading to a, another victory for the plucky hussites they're doing quite well uh is that the end of the Second Crusade? That's roughly the end of the Second Crusade. Again, it's another short crusade. But it's not the end of King Sigismund. In point of fact, he's actually getting a promotion around this time. The Holy Roman Emperor happens to die off, and Sigismund, who it appears was an heir to a lot of things, is also the heir to the Holy Roman Empire. So he becomes the new Holy Roman Emperor and uses that position to raise himself an even bigger crusading army. Being the heir to a lot of things is a pretty good strategy, I would think. And uh, so he's got another army and he's going to have a third go at taking Bohemia. Exactly. But the Hussites like their new tactic that they just worked out. It worked out very well for them. So they decide they're going to double down on it. They begin building new special wagons that aren't just the supply wagons that happen to beat a hand that are very strongly built and provide good cover for the uh, troops inside them. They start issuing more crossbows and more... uh, long-range weapons to fire out of these wagon forts that they're now using. And for the first time, they start changing the way that weapons are used on European battlefields. How's that? So until this point, there have been a few cannons around in Europe, but they've been used as siege weapons. You bring them to a castle, and then you point them at the walls and batter down the walls. You don't use them in the field, aiming them at troops. But the Hussites realize, since they've got these big, heavy wagons that they're bringing to the front lines all the time, they can put a cannon on the wagons and fire it out from their rapidly built forts, firing at the close-packed troops of King Sigismund's larger armies. So this is where we get the idea of these sort of primitive tanks. Exactly. It's a very important step in the development of field artillery in European history. And it's also wildly successful on the battlefield. Are most of these knights, you know, riding into battle on horses? I'd imagine firing cannons at them does a fair amount of damage you know from the physical cannonballs but also would terrify the horses exactly a lot of the horses aren't trained at this point to the sound of gunfire because that's not something that anybody's had to experience on a battlefield yet so when it first hits them when they first hear that noise they're terrified uh which is perfectly reasonable but a terrified horse is not a horse you want to be on top of no i wouldn't imagine so so the hussites are successful again and again they're facing off against these crusader armies and 
they're winning. I'm mostly just going to skip right ahead to the fourth Hussite Crusade, because most of the battles are very similar. Wagon Fort, King Sigismund tries to attack it with relatively straightforward head-on tactics, and once his attack is broken, the Hussites rush out and counterattack and win. So Sigismund tries this four times, and he hasn't figured out that his strategy isn't working so well. Well, the fourth time, he's gotten the idea that the strategy wasn't great. So he decides to try a new tactic when he encounters this wagon fort on his fourth crusade. And what's his new strategy? His new strategy is, instead of rushing in to attack it, he's going to surround it and encircle it. And then he's going to establish a siege just like if he was besieging a castle, slowly bringing his troops in closer and closer. Well, that does seem to make more sense if you're fighting against a wagon fort, treat it like a fort. Exactly. Which brings us to the night of December 22nd, 1421, where we were at the start of this podcast. The Hussites are surrounded. They've been watching all day as the Crusaders have not foolishly rushed in to attack their wagon fort as they'd been hoping and as had always happened in the past. And Yan Shizka, who at this point only has one eye, he's lost the other in some skirmishing, is realizing that the Crusaders are not going to make the mistake he was hoping for. So it's time for him to change tactics just the way that Sigismund has. And his new tactic is to hook all his wagons back up to the horses who pulled them into position and rush them as quickly as possible through the dark, through the weakest point in the Crusaders' lines, firing all of his cannons as rapidly as possible in hopes that that will make the Crusaders panic and scatter and his troops can escape. This sounds like quite the crazy plan. It's a crazy plan, but sometimes crazy plans are all you've got, and it works. His troops break out of the encirclement, and the crusade ends in some indecisive skirmishing. The Hussites have had to use some more conventional tactics than they'd been using up till now, but they're no longer particularly badly outnumbered as they were earlier because they've had such a long time to raise troops, and their troops aren't badly trained or equipped the way they were in the early days of the Hussite Crusades. They've actually equipped themselves quite nicely, both from the resources of Bohemia itself and from everything they've been able to capture, defeating three previous Crusades. So they're both experienced and well-equipped, and they don't go down easy. So how does the Fourth Crusade end, David? Well, the Fourth Crusade ends ingloriously as King Sigismund simply runs out of money to keep paying his troops and has to withdraw because he hasn't achieved anything decisive and his troops are going home whether he wants them to or not. But that's not the end for Sigismund who is immediately raising money for a fifth crusade because he is nothing if not persistent. <laughs> and it's not the end for the Hussites who have a motivation to start coming up with new clever tactics for their troops to use. So what do they come up with now? Well, firearms have worked out well for them. So they look at their major weakness now not as being infantry, which is something they've 
fought as a lot and gained experience with, but cavalry, where the knights are trained since childhood to be the best cavalry possible, the bohemian troops are usually peasants and therefore don't have that kind of training and experience with medieval weaponry. So they decide they're going to issue what they call pistala, small handheld firearms to their mounted troops to use when they charge in order to have a better weapon than lances so that even if they're not as well trained, they'll still be more effective on the battlefield. And that's where the English word for pistol comes from. So this is the first real use of guns with horses? Exactly. And again, it's a surprise to the Crusaders, and it's a very effective tactic on the battlefield because it's rapid and powerful and creates a powerful charge that tends to make forces that don't expect it scatter so that even if they're numerically superior, they can still be overrun by the Hussite troops. It sounds like Ian Shishka is contributing a lot to modern warfare. He is, and it's even more impressive because by the end of the Fourth Crusade, when he was starting to develop this new tactic for mounted troops, he'd already lost one eye earlier, and he lost his second eye to fever around this time, and was completely blind while leading his troops in action. I can't imagine there have been many blind generals, not just leading their troops, but winning. Winning. And this is essentially the history of the Fifth Crusade, the bold new tactics and the credible level of experience and training that the Hussite troops have gained over the years means that they're beating the Holy Roman Empire's troops no longer just with their wagon fort tactics giving them a better tactic to defeat otherwise better troops, but instead in straight-on head-to-head equal terms fights led by Yan Shiska, they're winning they even launched their own invasion of Hungary to try and get back a little bit against King Sigismund of what he's taken from them. All of this led by a blind general. Led by a blind general. But everything comes to an end, and the Fifth Crusade peters out with the Hussites planning yet another counter-assault to attack into the Holy Roman Empire rather than the other way around. But that counter-assault has to be called off when Jan Shiska, the by now legendary general of the Bohemian Hussites, dies of disease. And is the end of Jan Shiska the end of the Hussites? Well, yes and no. On the one hand, there's still a Hussite church to this day. They call themselves the Brethren of Unity. And they are continuing, I probably shouldn't say Protestant church, uh, perhaps theologically similar to Protestant churches, Christian church. But as far as military victories driving off five separate crusades by the Holy Roman Empire, this is the end, not so much simply because Jan Shiska is dead, but also because... The Hussite movement by this point was being held together 
to a very large degree by Jan Shiska himself as their political structures had been fragmented under the continuing crusades. And once he dies, there actually ends up being a civil war between different Hussite factions, leading to a famous quip that only the Hussites could beat the Hussites. Wow, so what an inspiring story, really, of this blind general winning five battles against, you know, perhaps bigger troops or better troops, and it really inventing a lot of what would go on to become very familiar modern warfare tactics. Yeah. Crazy story indeed. Thanks for telling us, David. I'm always glad to share what I learn. All right, let's play a quick game as we like to do at the end of these podcasts. If you don't like the games, you can turn it off now. It's Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And if you want to connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, our handle is at When Art Thou. Online, you can find us at obrother.ca. Or if you want to send us an email, Oh Brother, When Art Thou? at outlook.com. All right, David, our game today, once again, I've got a very creative name. It's Who Said It? How it works is I'm going to give you a quote and I'm going to ask you who said it. Got it? All right. I think I got it. (laughs) It's very complicated. I know. I know. All right. Our first quote, the oldest one in the quiz. I've got five for you. The quote is escaped by the skin of my teeth. Who first said it? Ah, perhaps Walter Raleigh. Oh, it's it's older than that. David is actually Job from the Bible. That comes from Job 1919, escaped by the skin of my teeth. Of course, now it's a fairly common expression. All right, our next one's a little bit more modern than that. Who said, the best way to destroy your enemy is to make him your friend? Ah, perhaps Mohandas Gandhi? Uh, It was someone a little more militaristically inclined than Gandhi. It was actually Abraham Lincoln, the president of the United States, who said the best way to destroy your enemy is to make him your friend. All right, our next one's another uh, presidential quote here, David. The quote is, one man can make a difference and every man should try. That sounds like a John F. Kennedy quote to me. Many people would think you're right, David, and in fact, it has been attributed to John F. Kennedy, but that quote actually comes from Jackie Kennedy. So I'm going to give that one to you. One man can make a difference, and every man should try. It's a Jackie Kennedy quote. All right, David, next one. Definitely not an American president who said this. (laughs) All I know is that I am not a Marxist. Perhaps Karl Marx? You're right, Karl Marx did say that, which seems somewhat confusing. Last quote here in the quiz, David. Who was the first one to say, the game is afoot? The game is afoot. Ah, it sounds like a Sherlock Holmes quote. Perhaps Sherlock Holmes? Sherlock Holmes did make it famous, but that quote comes from Shakespeare. Henry V is who says it in Shakespeare. Of course, in the play Henry V, Act 3, Scene 1, The Game is Afoot. Thanks for listening. This is Oh Brother, When Art Thou? 
And here's Kenneth Branagh as Henry V. I see you stand like greyhounds in the slips straining upon the start. The game's afoot. Follow your spirit. And upon this charge, cry God for Halle, England and St. George! 